Once again, we're back in the Detroiters Different Studios, and I'm hosting Kari Wade Frazier, as you know, from Detroiters Different. I have one of my good friends here, one of my homies. A lot of my homies have been on here, but this is one that's real close to me on a lot of levels. You see me bouncing around in his bar. If you ever catch me, I guess, anytime, probably like a Saturday night or a Friday night. And then in the summer, it may be just an off Tuesday night sometimes. We have one of the owners of the Detroit City Distillery here, Mike Forsyth. Mike Forsyth, how you feeling? Kari, I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Okay, okay. Most definitely, most definitely. So we're going to talk a little bit about entrepreneurship. We're going to talk about starting your business. But before we get into all of that, let's talk about your background. Where are you from? From a little town called Bath, Michigan. Okay. Uh, Grew up in the country. I'm a country boy turned city slicker. Uh Uh-huh. Been in Detroit about six years. Feels like home. So, you know, what do they say? Can't take the country out the boy. It's still true. But <laughs> I'm here now, and uh feels good. Feels like home. So got a little bit of both in me. All right. So how many people live in Bath? How big of a population is that? I mean, I graduated with less than 60 people. Wow. Wow, so, so so it's one of those things like you've been going to high school with like everybody. So like your third grade girlfriend, by the time you get to tenth grade, it's like you have like a past with or something. It's not like you can. Yeah, no, I mean there was you know, there weren't that many girls to choose from. So mm-hmm. you know, girlfriends weren't even an option. You had to go to the next town over for that. <laughs> so you know, it was Slim Pickens over in Bath, Michigan. Okay, okay. What uh, what did most of the people do in Bath, Michigan? I mean, what happens in every small country town, you drink a lot. Okay. You ride off-road vehicles. You shoot guns. You hunt. Okay. Uh, You know. It sounds like a lot. Try to stay out of trouble. Sounds like Which we did not really do. Sounds like a Ted Nugent record all (laughs) reincarnated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I grew up on a, I grew up on a tree farm. Mm. We were growing, uh conifers pine trees my dad owned a landscape company so yeah i grew up grew up on 40 acres on a little dirt road and uh you know it was good though because you know obviously in a small town you make close friends Mm -hmm. i've known all my friends since about three years old we're still thick as thieves you know a lot of those guys are all involved in the distillery too so yeah it's good to good to have roots um as i say um so it's a special place man it's beautiful um always a good place it's like my zen zen zone up there it's your fortress of solitude yes that's good to know your parents where are they from and what led them into get into the tree farming business yeah they're all from lansing area right so bath is just north of lansing and you know my dad you know, graduated college with a horticulture degree, was landscaping, and they were looking at houses. And, you know, I could have, I could have grew up in the inner city. We almost bought a house. Um, I would have went to school in Lansing. And then they found this old farmhouse because the lady who was selling the house was batshit crazy in Lansing. And they were just going for a country drive and uh, found the place. And that's where they landed. And so, you know, my dad, same year he had me, started his own small business. And now, 
uh, 34 years later, I guess, he's retiring this year. So I come from a small business family. My dad works harder than anybody, you know. He's still out carrying around giant rocks and stuff, you know, kicking ass in his old age. Um, But, yeah, that's not a good example for me. Good work ethic, you know, smart businessman, you know, did what he loved, did what made him happy, and started a business out of it, raised a family with it, so... And that's something that we definitely share in common, that we have fathers that were entrepreneurs and mothers that supported their practices. Absolutely. So within that, what was getting into that business like for your dad? Because, like, who is the client in something like that? Who and how do you market? How do you distribute it? Was it just taking a leap of faith? You know, I mean, like, so as soon as I could pick up a shovel... Mm-hmm. I was put to work. So that that's probably a very yeah. good day. So maybe, I don't know, 11, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, he it was all word of mouth for him. Hmm. He just got a website like two years ago. <laughs> you know, his advertisement was making his name just a little bit bigger and bold in the yellow pages. Okay. But for him, it was all word of mouth. You know, so, you know, back in the 90s, I guess, early 2000s, you know, they were building all these mansions and you know little suburbs with little cul-de-sacs so you know he'd always get in and you know start with a few houses and then as more people bought houses they'd say oh yeah you need to talk to phil for forsyth landscape service he does good work so it's all entirely was word of mouth for him so but then the the business kind of dipped down right so you know housing market crashed they stopped building big mansions and subdivisions and all that so, you know, he had to go further and further for work, um, you know, to the point where, you know, it didn't make as much sense anymore. You know, this was like two to three old guys landscaping. You know, that's not, you know, typically how the industry goes nowadays. So kind of like a higher end, more kind of like artisan craft, I would say. A lot of like brickwork and patios and big rock walls. Um you know, so you go to, you'll see an entire subdivision that he landscapes. Hmm. Does good work. All right. Now, you talk about word of mouth, and that's yeah. what people always say. Yeah. Every time you talk about business, people say word of mouth is the best way to get into business. And we're definitely going to dive further into a business discussion. But since you yeah. hit on the topic, yeah. let's talk a little bit about it. Yeah. What does word of mouth mean to you? And if you are starting a business, starting a service, how do you go about making sure you're building upon Good word of mouth. Yeah, I mean, you're only as strong as your word, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, business is, you know, a lot about relationships. So, you know, small in small business, like you are the small business. You, the owner, embody everything you do in your small business. You know, that's what it's all about, being an entrepreneur. So when people connect to that, they connect to you and they value what you're doing. And, you know, then they want to share that with other people. Because there's there's a connection there for them, and they have connections with other people that they think would value that too. So, you know, that I think is, you know, the strongest, you know, opportunity to grow a business when you start, you know, building a strong reputation and building relationships Those just grow over time. And, you know, I think a lot of people, especially when they're starting out, are impatient 
you know, and they're trying to pump a bunch of money into marketing and they got all these social media ploys and all this, you know, it still comes down to you. You got to sell yourself by selling your business, essentially. So, yeah, I think, you know, investing in those relationships is a good way to go. You just can't be impatient with that, though. It takes time. All right. So as you talk about it taking time and the transition and it growing after high school, where did you head? After high school, I went to school at Michigan State. Okay. University. Go Sparty. Go Sparty. Go Green. You know, it was the university right next door, essentially, for me. I always wanted to go to MSU because I was a MSU basketball junkie. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to games over at Jensen Field House when I was like five, six years old. That's like when you could like old school, old school. You like yes. give the players high five if they ran out like the locker room. Yeah, it's like you know, it was hey, like going to school. Steve Smith, what's up? Yeah, it'd be, yeah, it was like watching a game in a high school gymnasium. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I just always loved Michigan State. You know, my grandma would always like take me to the museum. We'd get lost every single time getting there. Uh, but yeah, so I just wanted to do that. And I went to school, undergrad, environmental economics. Um, I grew what led up, you into that? Just like growing up in the country, like, you know, my parents are kind of hippies. Like I understood the value of nature okay. and preserving the environment. Explain a little bit about environmental economics to, you know, for dummies, as they must say. Sure. So is environmental, explain it, because I have ideas when I hear the words environment and economics coming together, but explain it. Yeah, so this is the way I think about it. So it's real easy to put a dollar on a product, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, This bottle of booze we're drinking Mm -hmm. costs something. You know exactly what it costs. But how do you put a value on a lake, or the quality of the water, or the quality of the air, right? Obviously, there's water that went into that booze. Mm-hmm. How much did that cost? So, you know, environmental economics was really trying to place a value on something that cannot be traditionally valued in terms of dollars and cents. Okay. And so it was really about understanding, you know, how that adds value to different things, right? So it might not have a direct value, might not be able to quantify it monetarily but you know if you own if there's two homes one's on a lake and one the exact same home is somewhere else not on a lake the one house that's on a lake is more expensive Mm -hmm. that lake adds value so you can you know get creative you know i nerd out on quantifying all this you know what that incremental value is okay so there's some indirect value and you know just our human nature does not value that for really what it's worth. So that was my thing. I wanted to try to understand, you know, the dollars and cents of things that don't traditionally have monetary value. That's why I got into it. Okay. So is this sort of, because while you're saying that, I immediately thought of that Al Gore documentary, that inconvenient truth. That's exactly what I thought of immediately. So is it, like that that way of thinking about climate change. Yeah, that all that stuff factors into it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's costs, there's benefits, right? Mm-hmm. We trash nature, fossil fuels, you know, start depleting the ozone. 
you know, everything heats up, water levels rise. New York City's underwater mm-hmm. in 200 years. I don't know. That That's a huge value, right? So everything has a cost. It just, it's not always easy to quantify and it's not always immediate, right? Our human nature wants it now. We want to know it now. This is not how it works. So what do environmental economists do? That's a really good question. I don't okay. know if I ever really <laughs> found that out. You know, I like I started skewing more towards and this is like, you know, I remember very clearly my dad was like, can we swear on this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My dad was like, I want to kick your ass if you go to the college for landscaping. I could teach you how to do that because I was like thinking about going into landscape architecture. So that was clearly I, you know, wasn't going to go that route, but I was interested in the landscape on a much broader scale. Hmm. So I got then I got into urban planning. So that's why I went to school for that's why I got my master's degree in urban okay. planning. Right? So that's the kind of economics of land and real estate and people, places just on a much broader scale. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me that that led me into I did some consulting out in Seattle. You know, where we would understand the market opportunity to build a new town center in some suburb or, you know, what the impact of the video game industry was on the city and the region, all sorts of things like that. And so, you know, that really kind of triggered, you know, my interest in how economics work at a city level. Um, But you know what, like Seattle didn't need me to help with that. You know, Amazon's going to hire 20,000 people and, you know, everything's going to become more valuable. I have no contribution there. You know, Microsoft's going to build a new campus. Mm-hmm. I have no impact there. So it didn't, you know, the work was good. It was interesting. Um, but, you know, I kind of always had this itch to live and work in Detroit and, you know, have some broader impact, you know, in life and... That was what was valuable and meaningful to me. So, you know, I left Seattle and moved to Detroit, and now I'm here. All right. Now, you're talking about urban planning, and I'm diving deep into a lot of this information connected to one of the projects I'm a part of with the Framing Home Project that studies the history of a lot of property values over the span of the 1940s. Well, really, post-World War II till today. Okay. And in that, a lot of information about HUD, block grants, and just the whole development of, like, I don't know the person listening right now, the whole idea of what HUD is and how it came about was a direct action from the Civil Rights Act that was signed by, at the time, President Johnson in 60 and 65. And one of the first things to follow that was this Kerner Commission report that was supposed to address all of the at the time labeled Negro riots across the nation. So you had New York, you had Chicago, you had Flint, you had Watts, you had many other cities, uprisings throughout Baltimore. And Detroit was definitely, I guess, the the largest uprising that existed. So mm-hmm. after that Kerner Commission, the whole idea of what became Hood started. And that was led really kind of through <laughs> the the uh, initiative of the American Mayors Group 
led by at the time Phil Cavanaugh, who yeah. was the mayor of Detroit at the time. Yes, that's and right. In reading all of this stuff, I'm finding out more and more about how land usage, districting, zoning, uh, how different subsidies and incentives for developers to decide to use urban environments and really planning these master plans that last 25 30 40 years yeah. down the line of what is expected to happen by having a park next to this place and you say okay you incentivize a hospital to be here you incentivize um retail spaces to be here you incentivize commercial like i guess what they would say like mixed dwellings yeah. so you'll have one person on floor five that's paying $4,000 a month rent and then on floor six the other person's paying $400 a month rent right. and then these different ideas and initiatives that all follow up really incentivized by a lot of government money or government subsidies which is kind of government money in a whole nother way right and all this goes into urban planning so I'm seeing what is said to be a lot of urban planning and these plans are so long so the first question I have is why are the urban plans and these master plans for cities so long and the tonality of any politics changes so often every four years. Oh, so man. it's like okay. I, I come, I stick with a master plan. I walk in and I say, yo, this is my master plan. I equate everything to sports. So it's kind of like, you know, I'm the new head coach of this football team. Yep. I like running the ball. And then if I if when that coach gets fired, I kind of got to pass the ball no matter what because if I keep running the ball, people say, "Well, damn, we could have just kept the old guy." Yeah, exactly. So explain why you just your take on why are these plans so long, knowing that the tonality of politics is going to be ever changing, probably every two years. First off, excellent lecture on the origins of HUD. Okay, thank you. I sir. mean, like. I would have been smarter if I would have heard that from my college <laughs> professor. So kudos to you. Somebody's doing their homework. Thank you, okay, sir. But I'm, I'm preparing for my documentary about this whole 67 thing for yeah. next year. Yeah. Which is really the 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 honoring of the release of the Kerner Commission that launched it. Right. So, I mean, you're hitting on all sorts of important things that frame, for me, what I believe in and why I do what I do. So first off, I am the most cynical urban planning graduate you'd ever met. Okay. Because as I got into it more, I don't see the value in planning in a traditional sense. You're going to come up with this big, idealistic, theoretical 40-year plan mm -hmm. of something that you think should happen and you got all this politics and all these idealistic policies without really any understanding of how things change over time. Mm -hmm. You try to tell me what's going to happen in 40 years. Oh, I, it's impossible. The Lions may win a Super Bowl. Well, I mean, we know that's not going to happen, but I, maybe I, I don't 40, know. In 40. In 40, possibly. In 40. Possibly. That's, that's, that's far-fetched. Yeah, but, but I mean... thought that back in 1970, so... Yeah, but, know, you know, you have this, like... You know, so... There's the modernist view and the postmodernist view, right? Mm -hmm. Modernism's like, everything can be explained. So you got all these smart people 
We're going to explain how this city's going to grow, and they got this whole master plan mm -hmm. to make that happen. Postmodern thought said, "You, the world is random. Yes, you can't control it. Yeah, we are people that are changing. A society is changing all the time. There are dynamics that you cannot possibly predict, and so." You know, you tie this back to something like, you know, the 67 riots. And it's like, you know, oftentimes these plans, you know, are out of touch with humanity and what is going on and what is happening in people's homes or on a block in a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Every person, every block, every neighborhood is different. Right. So the whole concept of zoning or this whole urban renewal is, you know, we want to group common things in a certain space. This goes back ages. Christopher Columbus, I'm going to take this and I'm going to do my thing in this area and I'm going to put all the people who were here in this area. Right. Same thing. Urban renewal. Oh, yeah. Um, I know this. There's like this super vibrant you know, culture in Black Bottom. But no, you know, I think we need to build a highway here and we need to build these giant high rises and, you know, stick all the black people over here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these things manifest themselves. People react to certain things in a different way that, you know, these plans, you know, some are more thoughtful than others. I mean, we've come a long way, but, you know, you know, all these sorts of things where... You know, you try to estimate, you know, and plan for how humans are going to change or react, um, you know, by you making a decision for them. Well, we see how that works out. Right. So, you know, the best plans, I think, are plans that are always changing and, you know, it empowers folks to you know, try something and take ownership over something to see if it works. And if it doesn't, then that part of the plan is just scrapped and it just changes to what does work. So, you know, that's why these, you know, 400 page, 40 year plans just aren't realistic. You know, so that's where I got into economic development because it was all around implementation. You know, you think about what can I do now? And you use that to inform what actually works and you plan according to that. And it's not trying to estimate, oh, what am I going to do now that's going to influence something in 40 years? You just don't know. So, you know, it's I think it's important to have a long-term vision, you know, and something that a lot of folks can buy into. But if you aren't focused on you know, what you can implement over the next couple years and who you're going to do it with and how you're going to empower those people along the way to kind of make their best life, then you're doing it all for naught, in my I, opinion. I agree. I actually think that back to a football analogy, it's like when you get possession of the ball, you need a first down plan. Right. Now, you want to have a red zone scheme somewhere of in course. the playbook. Yeah. But you can't necessarily be thinking to yourself, Red zone scheme. Right. But because you know what you'll you never want. get to the red zone. Yeah. If you never really have a first, second down, third down, and 
you know, worst case fourth down contingencies sure. of how to move the ball down the field. Yeah, and sometimes you're going to get sacked and you got to yeah. come up with a new plan. True. Right? You know, if you're planning on, oh, I'm going to run the ball for three yards and get a first down, but you're 13 yards away, that that, that plan is no longer a, a very smart option. Yes. So that is, I mean, that is a good way to frame it. You know, so, you know, again, you know, I got into, I got just so frustrated with planning because it's just like, I'm going to talk about this stuff and then it's going to sh- sit on a shelf and we're not going to actually do anything about it. So that's why I got into economic development because I was eager to see something get done. Okay. You know, because, you know, when you start doing it with people who, you know, because everybody wants to, everyone wants to score a touchdown. Sure. Right. Yeah. So what's everybody that? wants to get to the red zone. Yeah. So what's that equate to? In city life, good jobs, good housing, good schools, you know, people feel safe, True. clean environment. You know, now, everybody wants that. Now, with that being said, you brought in another one of the great things I always say that adds layers and context to everything right. within human development. This was actually a yeah. discussion we were having with. Uh, one of your close friends, and you work with her now, Lauren Hood. Yeah. Shout out. She needs to be on this podcast soon, too. And we were talking about this dynamic that's happening in Chicago, yeah. where for years they were saying, you know, if these people can get jobs, then things will change. If these people can get jobs, things will change. So there's right now one of the four plants that exist in the Chicago neighborhood, inner city Chicago neighborhood, but there are still uh, – men and women that are loyal to the gangster disciple gang and the vice lords gang that they've grown up in and it's a part of the culture so you have actual gang rivalries on a operating i guess uh, let's just say operating manufacturing line sure right now happening in chicago because you take a a manufacturing plant and you place it in that community. And the thought process was an argument led by many people, preachers, different planners, and then even ex-gang members was, if you give these people jobs, things will change. Right. So you gave them the job and now I'm a vice lord that works the night shift. Right. And I see a gangster disciple and I'm fighting when I see him. Yeah. In forward. So it's still certain nuances about these things that even implementing these plans that need to exist. So when, as you say, what is a touchdown to everybody because you're dealing with the human brain and just we're irrational creatures more so than any other creature on earth. Right. You know, we're not like birds, birds. They're going to wake up at a certain time. They're going to fly. They're going to start chirping. They're going to do what they do. Most other animals are going to go to wherever water is, and that's where they respond. Thank you, man versus wild, for giving me that information, amongst other things. But we as humans, it'll it'll be water. We need water. We'll look at it, and we'll say, eh, I'll wait for it. Because we're not as habitual as others. Right. So how do you adjust certain plans when you have that idea of a touchdown in mind, but the public doesn't respond like you think. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, right. Football is a game touchdown, Mm -hmm. six points, Mm -hmm. but life, you know, touchdown means different things to different people. So you got to really, 
you know, I think from an urban planning perspective, you really got to understand what it means to different people. And the difficulty is, is that it varies so much across different people, right? So, like, of course, creating 100 to 600 jobs with manufacturing wages sounds like a good idea, you know, in a troubled part of town, you know, to put folks to work. But that means something different to, you know, someone running the line, you know, to someone who's actually working it, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, that's a, that's the a hard part. So, you know, it's always, you know, you always got to approach it from a human level and you got to, I think, create enough opportunity through the process that people can define it for themselves. And, you know, you got to celebrate what's good in it. There's always, there's something good, you know, even in the worst situation that you got to celebrate if you want to move forward. You know, so I think that's an important thing that you got to play out. And so that's the real challenge and nuance of creating a plan. Not everybody's going to buy into the plan and the plan is going to look different to every person. So how do you create some processes, some support, some means of empowerment to let people define their own path, what kind of all generally move in in the right direction that is a spot that people generally agree they want to get to, right? Like, you know, even the vice lord wants a good life for his or her child. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's good in that. They just have a different idea about how they're going to get there and do it. So, you know, what is the way, you know, to get that in a way that is a pot, a positive. All right. Now you touched on something that is really deep, especially now into a political year in Detroit. Yeah. And consistently, my whole life, I remember, especially when it was at large, it'd be like 150 people running for city council and all types of things, you know. Shout out to so many people and a lot of people with good ideas. But even as I see politicians say things in this city, there's such an executive run city. Right. And I sit and know some of these people that are running for office and saying that they can do certain things that it's like they have no control over. One of the toughest things I... I think at the hand of any politician is that you're looking for support of the people from a vote. And also you want the encouragement for them to share the words and just, you want to feel as though you're of assistance to these people, but a lot of people don't even understand the process. Right. So back to the football analogy, you have players on the team that don't even really understand what the goal of the game is, or don't even really understand the play. It's just, you know, it's like that defensive tackle that it's just like, hey, just just try to get the quarterback. But they don't understand that, okay, you're in for only uh, first down situations because we're trying to get a sack and it may force an interception because they're not even there with the whole scheme of it. They're not even understanding that, okay, well, you know, there's an executive branch and it's a legislative branch and city council is really only a legislative body. Now they can take action, they can have 
write a letter. They can maybe have more influence over what the executive body could do. And the number one influence they have is they can decide the funding that is accessible to the executive body. But a city right. council member really can't take any executive actions because that's what a city council member that's outside of the means of their capabilities. But right. then, you know, you go to a city council rally and somebody says, I'm going to make sure you got more police on the streets. And it's like, uh, you don't even necessarily do that. Right. You know, I'm going to make sure lights get turned back on. And it's like, uh, you don't do that either. Right. That's executive. That's an executive thing. And really, that's not even necessarily an executive thing. That's an executive. Uh, executive gets the money puts those duties and responsibilities into the hands of whichever governing body does that. Right. And they're the check and balance for that governing body. So being that so many people are disconnected with the whole process itself and how it works. And I'm speaking specifically about city, but this is definitely state. I think that it's so many state legislators that just go unchecked and unbalanced that it's, it's grossly, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. And I don't think it's just a Detroit thing. I think that whole Lansing is full of, you know, you get in the state offices, whatever. You can do what you want to do. Yeah. So being that so many people don't understand the process, what onus does the person such as yourself? And when I say yourself, I'm not speaking of you per se. Yeah. But let's say a a community group that's really looking to say, all right, look, we really want to rezone this so that we can put X here. Because if we can declare this as X, then it opens up the opportunities for federal block grants. It opens up the opportunities for us to bring in other investors. It opens up the opportunities for a bank to take a risk on in, in this area that they generally wouldn't take because they're going to be subsidized or they're going to be insured by the federal government. How right. do you do that? Whew, that's a million dollar question. I mean, but the, the way I think about it is you are your own president. Mm-hmm. You are in charge of yourself. Mm-hmm. And nobody else is going to tell you different. So every decision you make if you think you're in charge of it as opposed to, oh, I'm going to cast a vote and this person's going to make a decision for me, that's just not realistic. Because politicians, how they get paid is, oh, I just got to please the majority of people enough for them to tell me, yes, you can keep your job and yes, you can earn your paycheck. So it's kind of a unenvious position to be in, I think. But the good ones, in my opinion, you know, just like we were talking about planning, you know, they can relate to you on an individual level and then they can create some some niche for you in the process to contribute and build a sense of ownership where you, the person, are contributing to the greater good, which is also what matters to you. Mm-hmm. And... When a community comes together and the majority of people can come together and have a common understanding of where they want to go, that's what's really powerful. So, like, when you look at Detroit, and Detroit's changed a lot, you know, it was a city kind of run in the absence of government for a long time. You know, government was dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, what you see, especially too, in my line of work from a community economic development standpoint, you see all these neighborhood groups pop up and right. You got your little mini mayors of the block or of the larger community and they're fighting and scrapping for everything they get. And so, you know, now when you have a strong executive um, in the office, there's this, you know, kind of balance of power and like, you know, how does it play with, you know, a community who has been functioning basically on their own without any help from the government before? And now that the government is ready and positioned to actually help, how do those two things align? Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, this is why planning is important when you really kind of go from the bottom up to understand where the community wants to go and you plan for the people who are there and the kids who are there. And so that there's some way through this process that they feel ownership over the direction they want to go. And I think this is why, you know, a big missed opportunity is we don't involve the youth as much in this, right? Detroit needs to grow its population, right? We kind of all know that. Um, you know, if this city is going to truly come back, but it's got to be starts with the people who are here and the Detroit 20 years from now starts with the kid who's five year old right now going to school who, you know, if you give him or her some opportunity to build a park or, you know, improve their school or, you know, clean up some empty lots, do a community art project, right? They feel some ownership, like they made the place better. They grow. That's an experience they remember. They feel some ownership in the process. They grow. They have more talents. They contribute more. And then that decision comes when, oh, I finished high school or I finished college and I can do anything I want and I can live anywhere I want you know, this is home. I feel ownership over here. I want to continue to raise a family because I had a good family here. I think that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing we got to do is, you know, no matter how small it is, it could be planting a tree, Mm -hmm. you know, those sorts of things are important to giving people some sense of ownership and like individual impact so that it's not just Uh, Yeah, I voted for this politician and they kind of did what I generally wanted them to do, but they just did it. They didn't really ask for any help. And not everybody's in position to help to do everything, right? Not everybody's going to be an electrician and go turn a light on on your street. But, you know, people can advocate for, I need this street light on on my block, right? You know, and that's where... You know, those who I think are good politicians respond to that on a human level. But the challenge, too, I guess I'd say is like, you know, there's all these overriding factors like economics that come into play that make some of these things feasible or not. And so to solve for that big uncertain equation, you kind of got to deal with it piecemeal and you got to kind of be satisfied with not having it all figured out, you know. But that's, again, right? You need a first down strategy, 
-hmm. How do you get to the next point to where you can further advance down the field? So, you know, one thing at a time, incremental, like not everything's going to change all at once. So don't, don't be unrealistic and think it's going to. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the sort of thing I think, you know, too, especially in Detroit, people are so eager, you know, to see change. It just takes a long time. But politicians, they got terms. They got to show change in two to four years or else they're not going to have a job. Sure. So, you know, there's always some play that comes with that. But that's why... You know, I think it's important to invest in people and youth in particular. So because they are the long play, you know, they can decide they're going to live in a house for 40 years. So is it just a place to live or is it something more than that? You know, I think we got to give people more than that if they want it. I think a couple different layers, but the number one thing, a lot of those things the elephant in the room, especially in anything Metro Detroit related, is race. Sure. And race plays a hell of a role. So in a lot of things that you're saying, I know that I have a mix of different listeners. Yeah. I probably have such a diverse audience as I've performed my hip-hop songs. And you've seen it and witnessed it at your own place. Oh, yeah, man. So I'll have, you know, a white couple that's 60 at my show. And they're fans of mine. Yeah. And then I have... You know, a black, a black, black singles that are like twenty something, and they're fans of mine. So it's a mix. So I know it's certain people listening, saying, "Okay." Well, you transcend. People saying, mm-hmm. like, few people. Yes, but I, I, I like, I like genuine homies. So that that's doesn't it. Doesn't really have it's a, genuine though. Have a have a level of race, but just knowing, especially growing up in such a black household. Yeah. Some of those things and some of the resources that weren't available to Detroit weren't available because it was under quote unquote black leadership what sure. was labeled as black leadership and the state and the federal government definitely did not want to invest in the black leadership the way that now what's labeled as white leadership which in you know some ways it's always kind of an asterisk i think that yeah this detroit is a very personality driven place whereas yeah. i don't necessarily know how much it's personalities like you can't say necessarily you know you know that's conrad mallet and it's his fault is you know it's okay conrad mallet may have been complicit to what happened but it's so many parties and it's an agenda that the detroit medical center wanted to push forward so conrad mallet may have been aware of and understanding of what did happen, but I can't necessarily put the whole onus on a Conrad Mallet. But a lot of times in Detroit, we do that often. And I'd say that that's all across both borders, you know? So it's the people that support L. Brooks Patterson, and it's the people that detest L. Brooks Patterson. Sure. Whereas I look at it as L. Brooks Patterson is a perfect politician because he's advocating for the people that do support him. And he's staying elected. Whereas I definitely think if things started to shift and things started to change yep. in Oakland County, he probably changes tone. Yeah. Well, if Detroit was electing Al Brooks Patterson, he'd be living far, far away by now. But yeah, he's, yeah. you know, he's a working for his base who all moved out of Detroit. Yes. And, you know, in the 60s. Yes, that is. And then all raise their kids to be terrified of Detroit. 
and that is his. That's basically his rallying. Cry. That's that. Yeah, that's that is that's who elects. The same way that Jeff Sessions' rallying cry is basically the same argument, but North versus South. Sure. You know, it's you know North messed everything up with this country. Should have never freed the slave. We really should have won that war anyway. We just didn't really have yeah. the support. But you know, I, I don't think Jeff Sessions will come forward and say that as explicitly as I just did. But right. Every argument he's ever made is along those lines. Right. So even when he's not saying that explicitly, he's saying that with an undertone, the same right. way that L. Brooks Patterson does as well. But you know, to bring this back down to this table, mm-hmm. you know, you transcend everybody black white young old gay straight it doesn't matter thank you because you find what's genuine in people Mm -hmm. and you see what's good in people and when you connect to that they connect to you so Mm -hmm. that's the like that to me i think is the art of all this you know but it's very tough especially in this region because racism and sexism too oh absolutely especially plays such a role in every dynamic of everything that happens in the city of Detroit that cost over $10,000. Yeah. It's it's almost like the very next question is black or white. Right. Where well, they from? Well, I think it, I think it Who gave it to? Them? So for for me, you know, I had a really good friend Brad Frost who passed away, but you know, he always said it was all about trust, and I firmly believe that. So you know, that's to me, you know, where racism and, you know, kind of starts is like, I can't trust you because you look different. That is definitely one. That's and that's level one. You're right. So that's level one. And then uh, it, and then a level of it's weird because it's just like prejudice, because some of it is the. Some of it is the jealousy. But behind that jealousy is some truth in that. So the jealousy that you being white, you're afforded opportunities that I can't get. Now, is some truth to that and some of it is a lie. But where the truth and where the lie stands, who knows? But in my mind, if I'm black and I think I do exactly what you do and I'm just like you, I think to myself, the only reason I'm not getting what you get is because I'm black. Where we've even had this discussion. No matter what race or whatever the 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 perception plays a role and prejudice plays a role in everything like right now i'm 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 getting through and i'm working out tomorrow but i'm back to my fat stage so being fatter plays a different role in how people perceive you yeah so so if you're fat is is it's assimilated with being lazy it's assimilated with slacking off but there are some ways to play being fat to your advantage whereas if you're skinny it's different if you're attractive it's different if you're tall it's different if you're short it's different if you're disabled it's different if you have a deeper voice it's different if you have a firm handshake it's different it's so many different things right that play a role that really should not necessarily make us make these perceptions but these perceptions in our mind do exist a whole lot kind of through i would say mass media over time but but know, it's also first, the chicken or the egg you know you know i mean so right you're throwing out all these terms fat yeah. disabled yeah. you know attractive skinny yeah right you know it's like it's just human nature to classify things yes right it's like 
I mean, too, I mean, part of it's just like, uh, it's just a way of life. It's a defense mechanism in some ways. It's like, yeah, you know, are you like, oh, I'm going to, you know, walk into a cage full of lions. But if I qualify those as, you know, harmless little kittens. Oh, yeah, sure. This is fine. You know. Oh, and now I'm now I'm yeah. getting eaten alive. I mean, classic, classic line. One of my favorite lines. Like I told Phil Cooley, I want a fat man making my barbecue. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, if you you want a fat man making your barbecue, you don't want a fat man as your personal trainer. Now that fat man as a personal trainer may be the best personal trainer. Sure, but, but okay. you are not having that guy as your personal. Yeah, trainer. yeah. So you know, I'm not saying that mistrust is not justified because it definitely is right like you know but that's to get back to this kind of bring it back to what we've talked about this is why it's important to relate on a human level because everybody's different Mm -hmm. right so if you're going to classify a group of people because they look or act the same way you're really missing what's different about everybody i agree and you know right so you can't really develop anything authentic with that person because you're just not even trying. You're just grouping them the same way you're grouping everybody else. Right? Like, so that's the big challenge, right? That's a challenge for urban planning. That's a challenge for politics. It's the challenge for business, right? You know, oh yeah, you own a bar. Well, my bar is not the same as every bar. No. You know, so like what sets you apart, right? So that's the sort of thing that, I think, you know, we as humans and as a culture need to kind of celebrate what's different about everybody because there is there is good in that, you know, and but people don't got time for that. People don't want to do that. Right. Everybody wants to move too fast. Everybody wants to keep it simple. You know, the hard things are hard for a reason. True. Right. Like, you know, if everything, you know was great and easy we wouldn't really think of it as that great right you know so it's like that's a real challenge and i think you know especially like our generation you know like we're impatient people we want everything now and i would i would argue that a lot of that is due to other forms of conditioning yeah based on mass media yeah because the whole idea of the jeff bezos and especially like the mark zuckerberg yeah. they're sold to us so it's like damn mark zuckerberg was a billionaire by the time you know he wasn't even out of his 20s what yeah. the hell am i doing with my life you know not necessarily yeah. looking at the argument for what really went into it because if you really you know open up the hood of the facebook story you'll see oh it's these you know 60, 70 year old investors that have been investing in tech for a lifetime yeah. that provided him the opportunity to get to the point where he got to yeah. that basically invested what they had into him to to get that there. But the story of, you know, a 65 year old white dude, you know, that's bald headed launching a social media network and making sure that it gets to a great platform. It doesn't sell as well as yeah. like, hey man, look at this cool kid that's 20 something and is a billionaire. Sure. That that sells. That's sexy. That's Yeah. That's but I you know, everybody's got you know these 
expectations about mm. what things should be. Yeah. But this is why, you know, I say you're your own person. You're your own president. You're in charge of yourself. Mm-hmm. Why are you trying to be somebody you're not? Why are you trying to be Mark Zuckerberg? You know, everybody's a product of their environment and their origins. Now, do you think that the whole concept of idol worshiping, which is a very capitalistic and definitely very American ethic. Yeah. Is is that just something that we'll always have as Americans? Like, is that something we have to deal with in society that we evaluate success based on what we perceive as success deemed to us? Yeah, I mean, like, all right. Did you want? Did you think you wanted to play in the NBA when you were growing up? Right. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, right. So I, so I'll tell you a story. So I went to, right. I grew up in Lansing. So of course I went to Magic Johnson's basketball camp, who okay. is also my idol. Okay. So we love Irvin. Yeah. Right. So we're in this More room. Of Isaiah fan. Yeah. Got you. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I'm not. I'm, I'm a Magic man. Well, I see. Yeah. So, but you know. But I remember very clearly, like, you know, I'm in a room with, like, three or 400 kids who love basketball. And he goes, there might be one of you who plays in the NBA here one day. And you could just feel the room. It was just, like, soul-crushing. Yes. He's just being real, though. You know, but, you know, I idolized Magic Johnson but you know the reality is i'm never going to be anything close to magic johnson mm-hmm. right so you know i think you know as we grow up and you know we change as people like you know there's some study that came out like you are a completely different person at the age of 70 as you are when you're like 20 you're just a totally different person everything about I'm, you is I'm totally 34. different I'm your age. We yeah. basically have the same damn birthday yeah. too. Yeah, we do. But I'm 34, and I know I'm the I'm uh, I am I make decisions a whole lot differently based on the information presented in front of me because yeah. that's what I think. It's it's based on what you perceive is the truth with what's in front of you. But when yeah. I was 20, the truth seemed a whole lot different than what's now. It's a lot of layers and nuances at 34, so I can only imagine. 14 years from now, when I'm 48, and I even always tell you this, you know, when we kick it back and we 50, it's going to be all types of stuff we look at like, oh, that was some dumb shit. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah. we had to do the dumb shit to learn exactly how to make the decision next time because when we do something that now we characterize as dumb when we were 20, it was the right decision for the 20-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with planning. Same thing mm-hmm. with business. You're going to screw up. Yeah. Right? Like the life plan when you were 16. Oh, yeah. yeah. Guarantee you was stupid. Oh, oh, yeah. Six, six, yeah, I was like, I'm going to be in a rock band and a drug dealer. Yes. That was my life plan yes. when I was 16. That that sounds like, a you know, lot of like, people's life plans. Yeah. I mean, maybe that would be cool if I was still doing that at 34, but I'd yeah. A, either be dead or be totally washed up and. Well, have nothing to, to do with my life. Shout out to Nikki Six on that whole thought process. One of my favorite rock and rollers. Yeah, that guy. That guy. <laughs> when I saw that behind the music, it's like, yeah, you know, I died of a heroin overdose three times in the same ambulance. It's like, God damn. <laughs> like, I guess, I guess heroin and Jack Daniels <laughs> by the fifth don't mix. 
Yeah. But, you know, Nikki Six is still learning that. Definitely one of the greatest rock and rollers of the 80s. More power to that guy. And, and that kind of brings me to, like, what you're working on now with yes. your business. Sure. Your business. Explain your business. Well, one addition of your business, because in entrepreneurship, we have all types of ideas because it's really a creative space. And you're from music like I'm from music. Yeah. And when people ask me about business, it's like, oh, man, it's just like writing a rap. So this is one rendition of business, but I have different variations of it. But right yeah. now, Detroit City Distillery, what's sure. the vision? How did they come about? What's going on with it? All right. So, yeah, let's bring this back to what we were talking about, the 16-year-old life plan. Yes. Okay. 16-year-old country boy. Okay. Nothing to do. Okay. Right? Except drink. Okay. But we can't find anyone to buy us beer. Hmm. So what do we do? I'm the bad kid in the bunch. The internet had just been invented. So I go online and figure out how to make hooch. Okay. Okay. Those were some very, uh, see, at 16, and let's say this. I'm going to give this commentary. At 16, I would drink some liquor that my homeboy made. At 34, ain't no way in goddamn hell I'm drinking some homemade wine, uh, pot liquor, nah. or any of that shit. I probably would. Okay. But okay. But anyways, right. When he gets to but when you're maybe when, different. Yeah, yeah. When you're 16 though, and you don't got any other options to drink, of course you're gonna drink it, right? So yes. first batch, white grape juice, yeast, sugar. Put it all together. Screw the top on really tight. Put it under my bed. Two weeks later, explodes every drop under my bed. All in this brown shag carpet. Room smells like booze. Mom's coming in. Mikey, why does it smell like beer in your room? Busted. Mm. Operation moves outside, scales up. Smart move. Girls are interested, finally. The, ah. like, three in Bath were like, oh, you can get me booze? I really like ah. cider. Why don't you make me some booze with some cider? Customization begins. Right? Then wait, it's wait, like. Wait, wait, wait. Let's stop right there. Yeah. Uh, definitely at 16, uh, the idea of the attention from females is a strong motivation for any action you make at 16. And it's probably the same for when you're 60 years old as well. But Right, so this is rock and roll, right? I'm in a rock band. I'm making hooch. We'll yes. not talk about the other things so you don't have to edit it out later. Yes. Right? So, you know, this is fun. You know, we're having fun with this. This is a bunch like of... Like Creedence Clearwater Revival. Yes, yeah, stupid country kids having fun. The smart one out of the bunch goes, I'm going to go to school to learn how to make beer. I remember this discussion in the field where we were brewing this stuff so you know grow up graduate all go different ways he gets like some degree in organic chemistry or something like that then he goes to work at bell's brewery then he goes to get a phd in microbiology at msu i never even knew they uh that people got phds in brew but more power to that guy right well i mean he's doing his phd in like plant pathogens I mean, the guy is, like, a genius. He's like Doogie Howser and shit. Yeah, yeah. But he now applies that to booze. So, you know, he's like, you know, so we always had this pipe dream of opening a brewery. Mm -hmm. And so he's at MSU. He's teaching brewing and distillation. Um, He's working with this guy, Chris Berglund, who started this artisan distilling program and built this huge distillery off campus for MSU. Hmm. Does, like, one of the leading R&D facilities in the spirits industry, does all the R&D for Jim Beam, hmm. 
Brees, which is like a large green supplier. So JP's teaching for this guy, and we're all driving up north to bachelor party. One of us is getting married. Hmm. And I just remember he goes, man, this microbrewery thing, it's done. It's saturated. Everybody's doing it. Let's open a distillery. You know, I'm like at this, you know, there's this huge distillery off campus. I'm teaching for the guy. Like, let's do it. Get drunk all weekend. Seems like a great idea. Right. These are all the guys I grew up with in this mm-hmm. tiny little town of Bath. Three people. Sounds like a great idea. We got lawyers. We got a guy who actually makes alcohol. We got an accountant who works at GM. You got me who does small business development in Detroit. Helping start all other small businesses. Grew up in a small business family. Based on the stupid dream, we're like, yeah, dude, let's open a distillery. This sounds sweet. None of the guys wanted to be the one to be like, ah, that's a stupid idea. What the hell are we thinking? So, you know, you do all the little steps, you like find a name, you know, you incorporate, Mm -hmm. you know, I knew all the real estate, found this amazing slaughterhouse in Detroit, former slaughterhouse in Detroit, no plumbing, no electrical, no heating, no cooling. It's basically four (laughs) brick walls and a jacked up floor. It was perfect. You know, like some of the guys are paying attention, some aren't. Sign the lease. We're like, great. Half the guys freak out. What are we doing? Oh, my God. We just committed to this. I was like, oh, guess we're going to do it for at least five years yes. until our next option. So now uh, it's two and a half years later. Well, you know, since that idea, I'd say it's maybe like three and a half, four years later. Congratulations. Been, yeah. Been open for two and a half years. And, you know, things are growing. It's been a wild journey, but we're in all the Metro Detroit Myers. We're in all the Krogers across the state. We're expanding to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I may actually get paid to work at the distillery <laughs> next month. Okay. I've now, been paid exactly. It, let me say this. Yeah. Let me say this for everybody listening. When you own a business, a lot of people watch the profit and a lot of different yeah. things and talk to people and say, what do you mean you haven't paid yourself in seven years? It is realistic because when you're getting your business off the ground, you may pay yourself back from whatever investment you made possibly if you make enough return for that. But if you have investors, sometimes you have to even bite the bullet there. And every business has what I call a lead dog or back to the sports analogy. It has a quarterback. Yeah. The quarterback is reliant upon these other people. And it's hard to say, hey, you know, I put $20,000 into this. You know, I kind of need to uh, pay for my roof or I need to pay for my car. I need to pay my taxes. So let me get back this fifteen. That can sometimes rock the boat of a business because it affects the bottom line. You have to know that when you start a business, you may be prepared to take a loss just period with that business for the first seven, 
to eight years. Very common. But not getting paid, you may still not be taking a loss. You may not get paid for about 12 years into having a business operating. So having the coffers, having people to invest, having family, having friends, having support, having access to other revenue streams is paramount. No, I agree. I mean, I think looking back a couple things. So, you know, I think that we looking back and I, so I agree, you got to figure out a way to pay yourself though, if it's going to be your livelihood. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, you need to accept in a lot of instances, especially in the small business kind of ecosystem we are, we have going in Detroit right now that, you know, uh, you're not going to get rich doing this. Um, there are very mm-hmm. few small businesses and kind of the service industry, retail restaurants, you know, that sort of stuff that I see making a lot of money. Well, I'm going to stop you there and we'll definitely probably pick up with another conversation like this, just specifically on business in about three months to four or whatever. Yeah. But let me say this for everybody listening too. um, the way you make money, it definitely, uh, shout out to my man, Stretch Money, my homie. It takes money to make money. Yeah. It does. But the reason that it takes money and those people that put money up aren't putting money up, they're putting money up with the expectation of a return. So you have to have a business model to scale that allows for profit margins where other people can make profit and they yeah. want to make profit as well. Right. So let's say you make a sandwich. If it costs you, 50 cents to make that sandwich you have to also put into account and that's just like at cost of you know uh, materials bread lettuce cheese whatever you have to take into account how much you're going to pay the person yep you got to take into account how to refrigerate it yep you got to take into account the other utilities that go into it you got to take into account the packaging for it so now this 50 cent sandwich that you think to yourself oh that sandwich only cost me 50 cents may really cost you closer to like 89 cents so you can't start thinking to yourself like damn you know people can go down the street to mcdonald's for a dollar you have to say well damn if i really want to make money on this sandwich and get an investor i may have to charge four dollars for this sandwich so i can pay myself and pay myself back for the initial investment and possibly pay an investor into this business. And you have to think, I'm using the sandwich example, but that's everything. Sandwich, fries, (laughs) water, pop, everything in your idea of a business. And one of the best businesses to model is McDonald's, as I know a lot of McDonald's owners. Shout out to my homie, Arrow Service, that breaks down He's broken down so much about the McDonald's business. It's crazy. He says that McDonald's has the system down to the point where a McDonald's owner can walk in and say, how many fries did you sell today? And it'll already give you the idea of how much profit that McDonald's made in a day. Because fries has the biggest profit margin of anything that McDonald's sells. That's why they're always trying to sell you the fries. And that's why the fries are so good. And when I say the biggest profit margin, meaning that they can sell you that big grop of supersized fries or whatever the hell. And it only probably costs McDonald's 10 cents. But they know that you may want a fish filet, but they may only be making 40 to 50% profit on that fish filet. But when you throw in the fries, now the whole product has maybe about a 70% profit. Yeah. You got to think like that when you're in business. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it, you know? So, you know, 
you're talking McDonald's. I mean, you're talking oh, yeah. global scale. Yes. And the efficiencies that come with that. And they're still losing money because is in America's market because people are getting healthier, you know, and that led to the whole Mick Cafe. It's like in in a, in a matter of, I don't know, about seven years, McDonald's and Mick Cafe competes with Mick competes with Starbucks because the thought process is if we can make a coffee not as good as Starbucks but comparable enough yeah. where people say mm, I go to McDonald's for this little bit less and the convenience of it being here than going all the way to a Starbucks then people will come to McCafe but even that is billions of dollars into marketing research and, and testing the market to get to that point yeah now you're talking competition yes convenience yes location yep there's only so many dollars in the world people are going to spend on coffee Mm -hmm. so where are you taking your cut Mm -hmm. so you know how's that equate to detroit city distillery well there's only so many people yep drinking booze there's only so much money to spend there's a million and ten brands there's a Hundreds of companies who are backed by millionaires who want to say they own a distillery. Yes. Right? You know, a lot of stuff of what you're out there buying is all bullshit. You're not buying... You're buying a brand. You're buying packaging. Half the juice comes from the same spot. mm -hmm. Right? So, you know, and those folks have gotten to scale. And even some of the Detroit-based distillers are made enough in Detroit but backed by larger liquor companies Sure, where it's still really that other liquor company's liquor. And you're drinking it thinking that you're supporting Detroit, and in some ways you are supporting Detroit, but it's not all from scratch. Well, sure. But that's, you know, we do everything from scratch, right? So like, but that's okay. But, you know, to bring this back earlier, we were talking about word of mouth, right? Mm -hmm. You're only as good as your word, right? So we are all farm boys. That's where we grew up in a tiny little town called Bath. So we care about supporting farmers. So we get all our rye for the whiskey we're drinking from Dexter Mill, right? We get all the botanicals across the street from Jermac. We could probably get them cheaper wholesale, you know, through somebody else more direct. But we want to support growth in our neighborhood, right? So, you know, a lot of that goes into our word, and it's hard to compete with somebody selling you some bullshit that says they're doing that when they're really not. And so that's the, that's the hard part about being a craft operation and being true to your word when, you know, that value that you place on how you do things is not always the most profitable or easiest way to do it. Right. That's why, really like really good really well-made craft spirits cost more money because you're buying you know a smaller quantity of grain from a farmer 
that has to go mill it, and you got to pay for that. Then you got to go and pick it up and bring it, right? Then you got to use a bunch of water to cook it. Then you got to add yeast. Then you got to distill it down into a product. Then you got to let it sit in a barrel and let it wait and age until it's good enough to drink, you know? So for me, I go upstairs and see all the money we've made sitting in whiskey barrels right now, right? So, you know, that's the hard part too. Like you were saying, paying yourself, you know, yeah, we could have paid ourselves, but we'd have no product to sell, right? We're investing it always back into the company as we scale and grow. And so, you know, the hope is in, you know, maybe five years, we'll get to the scale to where it might actually pay off. But we're putting the time in to try to grow it now. And, you know, for me on a personal level, you know, I'm helping start small businesses all over the city through my old, you know, job working for Detroit Economic Growth Corporation. You know, and I'll talk a big game like, oh, yeah, you should start a small business. And, you know, but I couldn't leave my own job to start a small business. You know, I had to work two jobs. I had to work one that paid the bills and I had to work for one that made me happy. Right. And hopefully that's going to produce enough value to actually pay me someday. You know, it's not going to be as much as I could have made at my other job, but it's also more important to me. It's a better life. Makes me happy. So, you know, that's why people are entrepreneurs because they want to be their own boss and they want to do what they love. Nobody's opening a small business because they don't like it. People are doing it because it's what they're passionate about. That's why I love small business and that's why I love, you know, small business owners is because they shine through that product. And you can see, you know, when they really care and put a lot of thought into it, it just comes through. And, you know, those are the sort of people, you know, you want to support. Um, And that's why it all gets back to word of mouth because people see that. People see it when you're faking it Mm -hmm. all day. You know, if it's not that special, you're just slapping some fancy label on it and calling it your own. People will find out, you know, which that brings me to what's next. Yeah. What have you learned most in this kind of four year process launching the distillery about yourself? What has it Mm. taught you? Small business is really hard mm-hmm. and it is extremely rewarding at the same time, but it takes a lot of patience and I'm not an inherently patient person. So I've learned a lot about patience. Um, I've learned a lot about, like I kind of had a little bit of a perfectionist complex going on, but I very quickly learned, you know, and this is through my, you know, my work too in the city, like it's not perfect. That's totally unrealistic. So, you know, you're just setting yourself up for failure if you're expecting it's going to be perfect. And let me say this too, in reference to that, the biggest opportunities in all business come in crisis-based situations. Yes. That sounds crazy, but it's just the truth. It is. When it's a crisis, that's when the opportunities come. Because everybody else is walking away 
And if you're the person that stands there and moves closer, that presents an opportunity where you will probably be there for forever. Yeah, I mean, and two, you know, the risk yes. that comes with it. Like, yes, my risk tolerance has increased substantially, you know, because sometimes you got to make a decision now mm-hmm. to spend money, mm-hmm. even though you don't have any. Yes. For the opportunity to make a lot more than you just spent. Oh, who you? Uh, yeah. So about it. Or, and then sometimes it's it's the as people wonder the equipment I buy and different things and different investments I'm making, as I tell them all the time and different investors I got into my business and thank God for all you different investors. And I'm still paying back those investors, but it's relationships. You'll always have investors. You will always be willing to present your business, be willing to sell your business to whomever you meet and and just get that. It's not even, I, I don't even like the term pitch per se, because pitch makes it seem as though it's insincere, but be ready to present your passion about your business to whomever you meet and be willing to step out there and say, this is what I want. This is what I'm looking for. And this is what I, what will help most right now all the time, because yep. you never know when you'll be next to that person. I was like, you know what? God damn it. I'll give you that hundred thousand dollar check. I'll give you that million dollars. I'll give you that $10 million. It will possibly happen. And along with that, um, as you talk about patience, patience is definitely a virtue, but money itself this is an employee and consumer thought process. Money always loses value. Yeah. I'm speaking as from an economic business standpoint, money always loses value. A lot of financial classes I had, and I'm speaking from a marketing perspective, but my finance teachers always say savers own spenders. But the reality is a saver is saving, waiting on a person to come up to them with the right investment. Because they know that saving money, they probably going to lose money anyway. If you keep a dollar right now and you wait till the end of the year, next year, you wait 12 months, that dollar, depending upon what the hell is happening, especially with our president right now, that dollar may only be worth 68 cents. So that's a dollar. So money's best value is in investment. The only time I think saving, saving is for real is when you think you're probably going to die within the next seven to eight, seven to 10 years. So if you think that you'll probably be alive, you need to invest. It's just what investment should you make? And that's the tough question that all Americans have. Yeah. You know, but I think, you know, one thing I've learned Mm -hmm. about small business and about myself is that it is not all about the money. Mm-mm. I was, it's about what makes you happy and how you want to mm-hmm. spend your time. Because, you know, they say time is money. Well, you know, I'm working a job and getting paid for 37 and a half hours a week and working at least 60 every week. And it was good work. I loved it. It was making an impact in the world, but it was driving me into the ground and it got to a point where I could no longer be happy about it because it was too frustrating. It was too much. And, you know, I wasn't spending my time where I wanted to on the distillery. So, 
you know, just as you can invest your money, you can invest your time in what you believe in. And that, I think, is, you know, anybody can do, regardless of if they have money or not. So, you know, whether you are a 16-year-old and you want to invest your time in doing your homework versus getting high, that's a decision you make. You might be really happy getting high right now. You might be really happy studying. You know, where is that decision going to put you in the next five or 10 years? You know, everybody has that decision of what they do right now that has some longer term implication. And that's why I think, you know, a lot of people struggle and have these expectations, unrealistic expectations of what somebody else thinks they should be. But, you know, you can make the smallest choices that can get you further down the road for what you want to go, where you want to go. And you don't have to have everything figured out, you know. But, you know, if you're generally doing things you want to do and going towards a goal of where you want to go, you will eventually get there. And if you put in enough hard work, which requires you put in the time to do it, it will eventually work out. Now, the money will follow. What you're saying, I was speaking when I was talking about money, I was speaking for the potential investor, more so to the business owner not being afraid to ask that potential investor. Sure, absolutely. What you're speaking about is definitely all business. I always say we have two assets in business, time and money. And the reality is, the more you get into business, you definitely realize that time is way more valuable than money because you can always find an investor to give you money. Yeah. You At this point in time, I don't think you or I have, uh, you know, uh, met the doc and got the DeLorean so that we can go back and get time. Yeah. So until that yeah. exists, time is always going to be more valuable than money. Yeah. So because with time, you're you're doing more than what the next person does. Even with this podcasting and what I have in the success of Detroit is different. I like Detroit is different. So it leads and I get so many visits every day. But the reason why I get so many visits every day to the website without even putting in as much SEO work and some of these new projects or some of the clients that I have and I'm working at SEO is because I started in 2014 and I kept putting up content and I can't get that time back. So now when you put in Detroit culture, in reference to anything on Google, Detroit is different is going to show up on the first page because I've been doing it since 2014. Yeah. And Google trusted as a, a reputable place because it's been new content for years that has existed. Right. So it, it's one of those things where I can't. I, it's value in the brand. It's value in the name. It's value in what I've done with it. It It's time and that time and that consistency It's so many podcasts that pop up and you know, have about seven, eight episodes, and it's tough. It's so many people that have that pop-up restaurant, start off on a high clip, and then it drops. Right. How do you gut through that, you know, as you say, how do you gut through if, I like running, back to a sports analogy, how do you gut through when that wind is there? You wanted to get out and want to run five miles, and you get to mile three and a half, and it's like, damn, I want to stop. Do you keep running? Do you stop running? How do you find that second win where you keep going? And in business, finding that second win can damn near be impossible because it may be everybody around you. It could be 
all your loved ones, your family, your girlfriend, your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your, your children. Everybody could be saying, why are you wasting your time? You using, you losing money and you wasting your time. Nobody's doing this. Nobody's doing that. Just last week, it was an event that you invited me to connected to the uh, Live 6 organization yeah. that you're working with. And I walked in. I walked in towards the end of the day. And it was one vendor. It was it was like 15 minutes left to vend. And he was putting his shirts up a little bit late. And I said, how much is your shirt? Because I stopped at the ATM machine, got some cash, just period, to buy something. And I just was buying just to support because I understand how hard vending is as a business. Yeah. And he was like, man, you helped me meet my mark today. And that was dope. Yeah. But he could have easily, because there really wasn't a crowd there, he could have easily packed his stuff up. And left. Yep. But he stayed to the end and he met his mark. Yep. And that's how business is sometimes. You have to stay to the end and meet your mark. And there's so many urges just to say, you know, fuck this shit. I'm going to go home, watch some Netflix, get a hot and ready and some crazy bread and drink some brew. Yep. I'm going to go over to my girlfriend's house. I'm going to go over to my boyfriend's house. Why am I working on this business? I ain't made no money yet. Why Why does my website even need to look good at this point in time? It, sure. Ain't nobody going to visit it. Yep. You got to put in the work and be consistent. Because consistency, more so than anything, and it takes time, I think that I think it's a gateway to what you said with the whole word of word of mouth. Yeah. You got to put in the time and it's always got to be consistent and you just can't give up. No. Like if the race is five miles and you're ready to quit at three, it's just going to fail. And that's the thing. I mean, like a lot of small businesses fail and, you know, for a whole host of reasons. But number one reason I think is because the people that were running it gave up on it themselves yeah no i think say, so they'll say a lot of different things they'll say the loan the bank the location to this to that but if you really got into their heart and you really ask them it's like did you still believe did you still have that fire in you yeah and you know there's certain businesses i look at and i say how in the hell did this become a success and then you meet the owner and it's like oh that's how yeah <laughs> but you know that's the thing too i mean you look at some of these serial entrepreneurs like they fail for 10 businesses and then up the next one, Twitter. Yeah. Our you know, pre- it's our like president. Our president is a classic example of that. Donald Trump. Donald Trump has has failed on five times as many properties as he succeeded on. But when he gets a Trump Tower that works, that shit works. Well, that whole casino deal in New Jersey was all over the place to start out but eventually you know it worked now i'm definitely not one to say that um that uh the business acumen or whatever but it's a level of self-actualization self-actualization and blind faith that every entrepreneur needs to have and he has that by the goddamn and, and and he's definitely not supposed to be president because that I don't think that those characteristics are well. If that are you know, if politics were a business, yeah, it'd be different. Uh, hey man, you know, I'm thinking this just isn't really working out. I think we're gonna go a different direction and hire our second choice, right? You know, it's just like that's mm-hmm. you know that's the difference. 
business yeah. politics, right? You know, that's why so many people feel like politicians, and especially business people feel this way, that politicians are so out of touch. Because it's like, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter how shitty of a job you're doing. You're guaranteed for four years a job. Yeah. You know, so, you know, it, uh, you know, that's just the kind of reality of, of that piece of the world. But, you know, that's why people start small businesses because they want to be their boss and they don't want to take orders from anybody else. You got that right. And, you know, I got mad respect for that. Yeah. Entrepreneurship. All right. So that rounds me out to the last Detroit is different questions. First one. If you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? Wow, that is a really big question. I don't know. I might change it from Woodward Avenue to Woodward Way. W A E. <laughs> Hilarious. Hilarious. That is crazy. That is crazy. It's like ego makes me have to ask, why? <laughs> why me? I mean, shit, Car, you're about as good as it gets in Detroit in terms of my opinion. That is that is extremely humbling. All right, second question. Your very first car. What year did you get it? What year was it made? What was it? 16 years old. I got an 88 Crown Vic. What year was that? Uh, what year was it? I don't even know. A long time ago. The Sometime in the 90s. Ah, a Crown Vic, an 88 Crown Vic. All right, how long did it last? Uh, it probably lasted uh, maybe a couple years. It started accelerating on its own. I got into a lot of trouble in that car, man. It was great. All right. Two couches on wheels. Uh. Okay. Love that car. Last question. Where was the first place you went when you got that car? <sighs> uh, where was the first place I went and got that car? There was this gravel pit mm-hmm. in Bath. That's where we all went. Okay. And did things we weren't supposed to do. Okay. Sounds interesting. Definitely sounds interesting. How do people get in contact with you? Or more so, I guess you'd say more so, how do people get to tell the people about the distillery? Because that's the best way to get in contact with you. Yeah, man. So I think the best way is to come and experience it for yourself. I will most likely be there. Mm-hmm. It's over in Easter Market, 2462 Riapel, mm-hmm. just off the beaten path. Um, yeah, great little cocktail bar. Uh, small distillery in the back. We got big things underway down the street at the Old Stroh's Ice Cream Factory, working on a production facility over there. We're going to be starting tours soon. Hmm. So you can come drink some whiskey and gin with me, listen to some pretty cool history, cool. talk about some science that results in something you like, okay. which is really good craft spirits. So, so yeah, and, you know, all the ways, you know, connect with us on facebook and instagram and all those various outlets um but the best way is to come and see it for yourself that's work that's that's work and that's great it's like bill not a drunk science guy (laughs) i'm positive bill and i would like it yes yes 
Thank you so much, sir. All right. Thanks, Kari. Appreciate you. Peace.